Well, I'm going to invite you to stand back up with me. We're going to read Psalm 23 together. If it helps you to focus in and center down, you're welcome to close your eyes. It's not going to be up here on the screen or anything. Just listen to the word of the Lord. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for Thou art with me. Thy rod and Thy staff, they comfort me. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He anoints my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, the first cross-cultural funeral experience that I can recall as a young pastor occurred, I was probably 25 or 26, and we had an African-American member of our congregation at that time who's had a parent pass away, and he invited me to join him at an inner-city African-American church funeral gathering, and I gladly did, and some of you joined me there, and I was sitting about halfway back uh, in the pews, And an elderly woman comes down the center aisle shortly before the funeral was to begin, and she says, are there any pastors in the house? Are there any pastors in the house? As she walked up down the aisle, and she had kind of an urgent tone to her voice, and I kind of uh, somewhat reluctantly kind of slid my hand about this high, and she spotted it, and she said, young man, come with me. Now, in my head, I was thinking, oh, maybe the family's having a difficult time before the service starts, maybe just need some folks to pray. I really didn't know what that come with me meant, so I slid out the center aisle, I came down. She walked me right up on the stage and sat me in one of those overly large throne-like chairs and sat me down. And she leans into me and says, you will have words for the congregation a little later. And walked away. I thought, well, this is not how I thought this was going to go. So I'm sitting now. There's like four other pastors who are clearly veterans at this scene. I'm clearly the rookie in every way, shape, and form. I am the rookie in this scene. And so the service begins, and it's quite active and vibrant. I love the cultural expression. There's people like dancing in the aisles because they're celebrating the victory of uh, Christ over death, and it's just an amazing worship time. And then we're probably five deep on the thrones up here, and the one guy sitting next to me, he gets up out of his seat, and he goes to the pulpit. When he goes over the pulpit, I see underneath the pulpit this very large, like, gallon-sized jug, and it says anointing oil on it. 
I thought, wow, I have no idea what that's about, but I'll bet that is something, right? I mean, it's a huge bottle. He's standing there right in front of this big bottle anointing on the pulpit, and he starts into his words. And his words went quite lengthy, and he was going on and on. I'm, I'm sitting there going, wow, I'm going, uh, mine's going to be really brief here. <laughs> but he, he goes on so long that the elderly woman who was the one drafting folks out of the gathering to come up, she comes up behind him. He's going on. He's preaching on. She comes up behind him, and she just kind of slides her hand into the base of his back, and he just wrapped up and sat down. I thought, wow. So as I'm sitting there putting this together, here's what I said. My objective is she doesn't have to put her hands on me. That's my objective now stepping forward to this so I, I'm next in line. I didn't know quite how the order went. And um, while he's talking on and on, um, I was handed a picture of Jesus, his face. And Psalm 23 was on the back of it, and it was on a popsicle stick, and it had the funeral home written on it. And I'm staring at it. The funeral was like mid-July. No air conditioning. I'm staring at it, and the pastor to my right could clearly tell I had no idea what to do with the picture of Jesus' face in my hands. So he does this. He goes like this. Pastor's preaching on and on up here. I'm just staring at Jesus' face, going, Jesus, I don't know what to do. And he goes like this. Ah, it's a fan. You guys all, it was a funeral fan. Am I the only one in the group? No idea. So I just started joining right along then, right? Just funeral fan in Jesus' face. Pastor's preaching on. I don't know what I'm going to say. So I'm next up to bat. I walk up there. And I, the best I said, well, I'm going to start with God's word because I clearly don't have anything of, I'm going to, God's word. So I start reading something out of scripture. And I, I make kind of a small point of some sort and the drummer is about 20 feet to my left, and he does a little ping. And I, I kind of like startled me. I'm like, I read a scripture and kind of made a point. He went ping. And, and then he kind of gave me the kind of gave me the wink and the nod. And it was the look like, I'm with you. I'm like, okay, I don't know what to do with that. But I went back on to my point and he did it again. And boy, I kind of got into this. I thought. We can get it going here a little while now. We just get Clay up here on the drums. Clay, we just need to get you back up here on the drums. And when you feel like a point is especially good or not, you just kind of carry with me. And I kind of start getting lathered up. I got going on this. I probably went on. And I thought, a thought came to me, that woman's going to come put her hand on your back. <laughs> we'll wrap it up. Well, all through the course of this funeral service, Randomly at different points, besides the drummer doing his little thing, the congregation would respond out in different pockets, God is good. And you know what the next line was? All the time. And then you know what the next thing they said? All the time. And then what'd they say? All through the service. Even when I was up there, which was exceptional at that point, I thought, wow, God must be really, really good because clearly I am out of my element here. But God is good all the time, all the time. God is good all the way through that ceremony. Last week, we began a series called Shalom. Shalom is the Bible word 
for a life that declares God is good all the time, all the time, God is good. Shalom means completeness, wholeness, the way things are supposed to be. Our English word peace is a little, is a little shallow for it, but it's, it can be incorporated into that. It's much deep, more deeply rooted than peace. And we began a discussion last week from Psalm 23 that there is a kind of life available to any who choose to enter it and embrace it, and we called it a shalom-like life. And the first element that we talked about last week was that Jehovah Jesus can be your shepherd. When the Lord is my shepherd, Psalm 23, my shepherd, Jehovah Jesus can be your shepherd. And what I want to look at today is, what kind of a shepherd is he? That's a really, really important question. What kind of a shepherd is the Lord? Adonai, Jehovah. Because the character of the shepherd is going to be the foundation from which our shalom-like life is built. So if you haven't already done so, open up to Psalm 23, and we're going to look at four character qualities of the kind of shepherd the Lord is from the psalm. And the first one ties into my experience in the inner city years ago is the first thing we see in the psalm, verse 6, it says, surely goodness and love will follow me. The Lord is a good shepherd. Jesus said it in John 10, 11, I am the Good shepherd, he applied the same metaphor. And we did a responsive reading with Psalm 136 or Psalm 119. You are good and what you do is good. Teach me your decrees. Or Psalm 107 says, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. From the opening pages of this book, God is declared to us as an infinitely good God. How does Genesis chapter 1, when it's describing the creation account, right? When God makes the sun, the moon, the stars, the land, the sea, the plants, the animals, there's a refrain all the way through Genesis 1. Do you know what that refrain is? And he saw all that he had made, and it was good. And it was good. And it was good. And at the end of chapter 1, he creates Adam and Eve, and he steps back from all the creation account, and he saw all these, and he said it was very good. The goodness of God is declared from the opening pages of Scripture. All the way through, God is infinitely good. And shortly after those opening pages, another declaration comes right alongside with it. This world is completely broken. Check it out. Genesis 6, verse 5. Look at this verse. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become. Wait a minute. The same man you created, I'm only on page five in my Bible, by the way. So just page five. Wait, just like two pages ago, they were with you walking in the garden and everything was really, really good. And now um, wickedness of man on earth had become that it was an inclination, that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Wow. How about Jesus in John 16, 33 says, in this world, you will have trouble, not might have, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So here's the, here's the declaration. 
The context of the psalm where David presents this infinitely good shepherd is our lives are lived at the intersection of goodness and brokenness in this life. We live at that intersection point. That God is an infinitely good God and this world is completely broken. Genesis 3, sin, Adam and Eve. And if you want to know like, So you got this much of your Bible covering just life without sin, infinite goodness of God, no sin. And then the rest of the storyline is the intersection of goodness and brokenness. When I think about the kinds of people that I've interacted with through the years, I see some themes running. The people I know who are the kindest, gracious, loving, patient, humble Those people are also ones who have suffered very deeply in life. But I notice another theme. That there's people, some people I know who are the most angry and bitter and resentful people I know have also suffered most deeply in this life. And what's the difference? The difference is one group found grace in the brokenness, and the other chose a lot of different ways to go with it. That there's, there's one group, the group that chooses to go through Psalm 23, the context of the psalm, you get this infinitely good God who can be your shepherd set before you. And then you get lines like, you're going to go through the valley of the shadow of death. You're going to have a table prepared for, before you in the presence of your enemies. Do you get any thought there? Do you see goodness and brokenness? There's going to be like, you're going to live at this intersection. But David says, there's the kind of life you can have where you can begin to experience something in the brokenness How? How do you stay anchored in goodness in the midst of this clearly broken world? Well, I think one of the things is you begin to see that there's a certain kind of a life to live where you operate on a different timeline than the 70, 80, or 90 years you're given here. Do you know there's one way to live? You can live as if you've got 80 or 90 years on this earth. And you're going to pull out of this life all that you can, and you're going to just kind of live in the moment, for the moment, this is it. The scales of your life are weighed in 80 or 90 years. That's one way to live. But it's going to be very difficult to navigate brokenness, because there's no question we're all going to encounter brokenness in life. If you're not currently at that intersection right now, just keep living, and you will come to it. Most likely, we're all there in some place right now, because that's what the world, when Jesus says, You're going to have trouble in this life. That's Jesus saying that. But it's not going to get the end of the story because there's there's another way to live. You can live as if this 80 or 90 years is it, or you can live with an eternal kind of life. That there's this different way of framing time. There's a different way of looking at how this whole thing rolls out. And it has to do with my life in eternity doesn't begin like when you meet Christ, you say, oh, I know I'm going to have eternal life when I die and go to heaven. Do you know that really the picture Jesus paints of the gospel of the kingdom is you actually get to enter an eternal kind of life the moment you meet him and come alive in Christ. Your eternal life begins now. You're living an eternal kind of life now. And eternity is an extension of what you're experiencing here. That's why we have that phrase around here we talk a lot about. We're training for the days when we're reigning and ruling with him in glory. That's what this life is. 
What's God doing in your life? He's training you to reign with him forever and ever. It's not like you just got to like graduate from this life and say, oh, this was all just 80 or 90 years of whatever, and then you go on to glory. Hey, this is all, your eternal kind of life starts now. You can live in that now. That's a different way. And what does that mean? Well, that means you're going to look at the scales of this brokenness experience a little differently. Because, gang, there's some things we're going to experience in this life. If you just waited in the 80 or 90 years, be honest with me. It will remain in the category of mystery. We just won't know. Some of you have experienced some things. I've sat with some of you in some of those darkest places, and we've had this conversation. Well, we don't know why this, why now, how much more can you take? Why does it have to be so dark and so difficult? If we just weigh that in the 80 or 90 years of this life, do you see what I'm saying here? It's going to remain in the category of mystery. Like, hey, John the Baptist in the New Testament. Jesus' close friend. He knows John's arrested. He knows there's a good chance Herod is nuts and is going to have him beheaded. Jesus didn't step in and prevent it. How about John the Baptist's family? If you just weighed that in the 80 or do you see? It's like, what, why would you take him out? Or how about Stephen? How about one of the first martyrs of the church? Stephen gives an unbelievable defense of the Christian faith, standing up for Jesus in a tough environment, a leader in the local church, a young man who's full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, full of grace, according to Acts 7. And then he's stoned to death. He's only on the job like three paragraphs, and he's already basically walking the gallows. And Jesus did it in the 80 or 90 years. Do you follow me? That's a mystery in that why. What about Stephen? As far as we know, he didn't get to say goodbye to his family. He didn't even get to kiss his wife or say goodbye to him. He's just gone as a young leader taken out. we've said before many times that there's this element of mystery in the broken experiences of life as we weigh it in the scales of God's goodness. And that mystery isn't the absence of meaning, but the presence of more meaning than we can comprehend. And there's more going on in all of this than the 80 or 90 years on the scale could wait. You're not going to be able to sort it out in this life. So one of the ways we stay anchored in God's goodness in the midst of living in a world of brokenness, is we step back and we say, in Christ, I am living an eternal kind of life right now. And God is at work on a time frame that is much different than 80 or 90 years. Which moves into the second kind of point of anchoring ourselves, which means this. Genesis 1, God's goodness declared. All that he has made is very good. And then from Genesis 3, brokenness comes into the world through sin, all the way to what? Revelation 22. If you haven't read the last chapter of the Bible recently, that would be a really encouraging chapter to read because you know what it says in the end? Goodness rolls on for all eternity, and brokenness has an end point. Hallelujah. Man, that's something to get excited about. Are you kidding me? That at the beginning of the story, God is infinitely good. He's an amazing God. He's lavish in his love and his grace. He is a good God. 
and oh, then Genesis 3, and oh, the brokenness of the world, and pain, and heartache, and loss, and suffering. All these pages in here, but then, whoa, wait, at the end, end of the story says what? Goodness rolls on like a river forever, and brokenness, you're done. Evil, darkness, injustice, pain, suffering, end point, checkmate, you lose. Christ wins, grace wins, love wins, hope wins, God wins for all eternity. So how can we stay anchored in that goodness? Guess what, gang? We have to be honest about, guess what life we're living right now? We're living right here. We're living in the in-between. Genesis 1 and Revelation 22, we're living in between that. And what that means in between is we're living at that intersection. And what we have to have is the folks I interact with, some of you who've walked through such Places of brokenness, depth of darkness, of valleys that I can't even fathom to experience and to see your intimacy and companionship and love and humility grow and flourish in all that darkness, that's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm saying. You're tasting something of goodness in your brokenness. That's one way you can go about it. And some of you are experiencing that, and that's a wonderful gift we have in the body and why we have to be in community because when you're going through brokenness, you need to get around someone like that, someone who's lost some things, who's had some heartaches, and who's anchoring in God's goodness and tasting his grace in the midst of that and is becoming the kind of person that Psalm 23 says is available to you in the presence of your enemies when you're going through the valley of the shadow of death. Because there is an alternative way to go through the brokenness. And I think this quote from James Bryan Smith summarizes it well. I put this in your notes. He summarizes it this way. Those who are selfish and spiteful and mean are intimately acquainted with guilt, loneliness, remorse, and self-hatred. They know what it feels like to have darkness surround and overtake them. This does not solve the problem entirely, but it gives us a glimpse into the goodness of God. God promises that those who love and serve and are honest and faithful will know a kind of joy and peace that those who are evil never will. Did you follow that? There's your two camps. We're all going to go through brokenness. You might as well abandon the camp right now that says you're going to be exempt from broke. Give up on that camp. You're going to go through brokenness. The question is how? And Psalm 23 says, you can go through it with an infinitely good shepherd. He is good. And he will walk with you through it. And you can find grace in your brokenness. Or you can choose not to. And that decision point will affect a great deal, who you're going to become in that brokenness. And the second character quality from this psalm is not only is God infinitely good, but how about the line in Psalm 23, verse 6, is surely goodness and what's the next line the NIV says? Love. Surely goodness and love will follow me. Look at 1 John four sixteen. so we know and rely on the love, of God, love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. And the refrain we just repeated a few minutes ago, Psalm 136 keeps saying his love endures forever and ever. Now look, all of us grow up with some kind of vision of what love is and how it's given and received, good or bad. Everybody's got something, you're raised in some kind of environment 
where love is given and expressed, received or not, and whether there's usually degrees of goodness and brokenness in that. But how about this amazing picture you get in the scripture? Do you realize you can link up your life with an infinitely good shepherd who can teach you who is what the scripture says? He is love. He's the source of love, the definition of love, and can explain to you how it's given and received. Are you kidding me? So that means no matter how unhealthy perhaps our background was in giving and receiving and expressing love, do you realize you can learn what love is and how it's given and received from the God who is the basis and definition and fountain of love? That's amazing. Who wouldn't want this life? You mean I can like figure out what love is and how it's expressed and received in the midst of goodness and brokenness. I can do all that? Yes, because there is a shepherd who is a loving shepherd. His face is turned towards you in love. What vision did you have of God when you grew up? Did you have a vision of God where his face is turned towards you in love? That's the picture the scriptures paint, always. It's called unconditional. We're very good at conditional love. I'll just speak for me. I'm very good at conditional love. I'm married. Anybody who's married is a PhD in conditional love. I guarantee it. If not, ask your spouse. They'll tell you about it. But I'm really good, right, if, if, if Kendra A, B, C, I, C, D, E, right, if this, then that, that's, that's called conditional love. It's easy to love in conditional love. Someone does something for you, you do something for them, conditional love. Here's the picture the Bible paints for us. God's love towards you is unconditional. Are you kidding me? Now, I didn't say anything about disappointing. I want you to think as a parent to a child. As a parent, Lily and Kaylin, I unconditionally love, my love, my face is turned towards them in love no matter how they're behaving. It can be challenging as a parent at times to continue to keep your face turned towards in love, but you know in your heart of hearts you love your child no matter what. But they can disappoint you and there are consequences for the disappointment. That's a different discussion. This is how God's face is turned towards us in love. It's like, do you know you can't do anything to earn God's love more or less than you already have right now? Nothing. You can't read your Bible more, you can't pray more, you can't go to more church services, sing more songs to get God to love you more, to have his face turned more towards you in love, period. You can't do anything to earn it, zero, zippo, nothing. He loves you, period. That's his face turned towards you in love. It's called unconditional. And then it's sacrificial. How about, how about this picture you get, right, of God's love? He's got skin in the game. He loves you so much One of the most often quoted verses is what? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, what did he do? He put skin in the game. He sent Christ. And he sent Christ to what? Give his life. Watch his son bleed on the cross. For what? Because he loves us. We all know this about love. True love has skin in the game, and it is sacrificial. Others-oriented. Selfless. So there's an unconditional element to love. There's a sacrificial element to God's love. And then there's this relentless, never give up on us element. How about this picture you get of God? Do you realize no matter how far you wander away, do you, whatever it is you wander into and how long you're there, do you, you know this? You're not beyond God's loving reach. You're not. And some of you have that story sitting in this, your blue chair has that story where you were convinced you were on the outside boundary lines of his reach, and he was still there. And you turned back, and you saw his face turn towards you in love, and that's part of your story right now. That's the kind of God, David says, Here's, here is the shepherd that you can live life with. He is infinitely good, 
And he is a relentless, unconditional, sacrificial, loving God. I put a quote in your notes from a Vietnamese Christian who was telling a story of his childhood that I thought drove this home for me. Dennis Jin is his name. It says, when I was eight years old, I lost my father to cancer. A week after his burial, I became severely ill. I still remember how my mother, newly widowed, cared for me. She did not discuss with me how I felt. Instinctively, she took me into her arms and caressed my back with her gentle hands, reassuring me with words of comfort and love for me. I grew so sick that I was hospitalized. Follow this now. Since we lived in a remote village about 10 miles from the hospital, my mother carried me there on her back, walking powerfully uphill and down with tears streaming down her cheeks. She would say this, son, Daddy's not here, but mommy's still here. Hang in there. We will make it to the hospital soon. And then Dennis Jin closes the section with this. He says, a love that does not suffer with the suffering of the beloved is not love at all. That's the kind of love your good shepherd has towards you. It's that love. He is good and he is loving And then verse 4, Psalm 23 says, it's also strong. How are you going to go through the valley of the shadow of death, David says in the psalm? Your good shepherd's going to be there. Your loving shepherd's going to be there. And he has all the resources at his disposal to get you through whatever it is you're going through. He's strong. Do you know your God is strong? Do you have a vision of your God that's as strong as strength, power at his disposal? How are you going to get through that darkness of that valley? His rod and his staff. The image of Courtney's painting last week, right? In the midst of that darkness, there's that beacon of light, the staff of light. What? There's strength in that. How are we going to keep going? He'll give you what you need. And then verse 6 says, you're going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. How about the declaration of power and strength in that? Some of you have been all too familiar with the power and strength and certainty of death. Perhaps sitting beside the bedside of some loved ones, watching some folks' health fade away, and you go, the power and certainty of death. Here's the declaration of Psalm 23. Do you know that God is infinitely strong and has power over death in Christ? So when you get to the end of your days in this life, you get to reign and rule with him. How? Because he's overcome death. He's defeated death. Resurrection power. That power is available to you in Christ. That's strength. That's how you're going to get through what you're going through. Not on your own strength. You can't muster up your own strength. You might as well abandon that bandwagon right now and say, hey, but, but there's another way to live. I can go on this. I can, I can link up with this good shepherd who's a loving shepherd who is strong, whose rod and staff will not fail me. And when I get to the end of my one and only life, he will usher me into glory by the resurrection power of Christ. That strength is available to you. That's the kind of shepherd we serve. He's good. He's loving. He's strong. And then fourthly, he is generous. Psalm 23, verse 5, my cup overflows. Do you have this picture of God, like, sometimes lacking the resources to get done what he wants to get done? Don't don't have that image. Here's the image you need to have of God. He is lavish and abundant in the way he relates towards us. He has completely everything at his disposal to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. And the way he relates to us is not from a position of scarcity. He relates to us from a position of generosity. He's not like a a, a stingy miser. 
He's abundant and lavish in his grace and his love and his goodness and his strength towards us. That's the posture. How do we know that? Well, we just, if we just step back and kind of look around our lives for a minute, separate from our own circumstances for a minute and go, well, he sent his son, he sent his spirit, he sent his word, he sent his church, he gave us an unbelievable physical body to live this life with, he gave us people in our life to be in community with, He has provided to the point where here we sit today. We have breath of life in our lungs. We're given the gift of this day to what? Live and move and have our being in him. He is generous, abundantly generous in his posture towards us. Do you have this picture of God? Can you see him? That's your good shepherd. He is good. Your shepherd. The Lord is your shepherd. What kind of a shepherd is he? He is good. Right at the intersection of goodness. and He's good and he's loving, and he's strong, and he's generous. Henry Nouwen's one of my favorite writers, and Henry tells the story of going to South Africa, and he showed up at kind of a circus trapeze-like show called the Flying Roadies. Here's a picture of the Flying Roadies, and he showed up must have been an outdoor-type show, and he's kind of watching the scene unfold, and he said as he's watching the show, it occurs to him that the real star of the show isn't those guys who are flipping and spinning in the air doing all these amazing tricks. He, he started thinking about it. He said, the real star of the show is the catcher. And he said, because as he watched them more and more, the freedom that the acrobats had to spin and flip and twist, you know, the freedom they displayed there was a confidence that they had in the catcher. Not only the physical catcher you see there with those guys getting ready to catch them, but also a large net underneath them. If perhaps there was an error, the net would catch them. So at the end of the show, Henry Nouwen went up and introduced himself to the flying roadies. Here's a picture of Henry. (laughs) How about that scene? So he's like in his 60s there. He's a Yale and Harvard professor in his 60s hanging out with the flying roadies in South Africa. And he says to them, can I give it a try? True story. So he walks up, gets to know him a little bit, said, I want to try. And they're like, okay. So they strap him on. He climbs up the ladder. He grabs a hold of the swing. And the flying roadie said, for the next 15 or 20 minutes, Henry Noun was giggling like a little child. He would flirt, uh, like thrust freely into the air, and he'd just release himself. he just let go. And he was like flipping and spinning. And you know why? Because... The catch net had him. He just flopped into the net and flopped back up and he scurried to the edge of the net and he says, can I go again? And he'd go again. Now and just kept going and flipping and spinning and giggling and releasing over and over and over again. At the end of this whole experience, he wrote this paragraph. It's in your notes. If we are to take risks to be free in the air, in life, We have to know there's a catcher. We have to know that when we come down from it all, we're going to be caught. We're going to be safe. The great hero is the least visible. Trust the catcher. And some of you, as you begin 2016, your life is really closely aligned with a little circus show up here. 
and you're struggling to loosen the grip. You're struggling to let go. And David, the author of Psalm 23 says, I'm going to give you a really, really good reason to loosen your grip, let go, take a risk, and fly. Here's your reason. Because there is a great catcher, and he is good. He's always at work with your best in mind, even in the brokenness. And he is loving, unconditional, and sacrificial, and relentless in his love. And he is strong. That net will not break. He is strong. He has you. And he is generous. His posture turned towards you could have you screaming like a little child in the air. Church, we can trust the catcher. Let's pray. God, thank you for this vision of the kind of shepherd you are. Would you lift up our eyes right now? In the midst of maybe all kinds of circumstantial chaos pressing in, would you lift our eyes up and set them squarely on you, the good and loving and strong and generous shepherd? And would you grant us by the Holy Spirit power to loosen the grip, to release control, and to let go? That we might experience the kind of freedom and life of living in your flock under your good care, no matter the circumstances, this life is available to us. And we just need to decide right now to embrace it and enter it. And so, Lord, as we worship now and through these songs, would you just continue by your spirit? Press in your character upon us. Melt away maybe the unhealthy Visions of pictures of who you are and ground us in reality, the truth of the kind of shepherd you are. For this good life is available because you are a really, really good shepherd. We worship you. In Christ's name, amen. When we stand together and as the team leads us, I just want to encourage you, maybe some of you are here and you need to spend some time personally, just you and the Good Shepherd, these spots to kneel on either side, you can come, pray alone if you need prayer with others, Um, but we're just going to respond back to the Lord now and worship Him for who He is.